Chapter Two: All Our Relations. The Neglectful Mother. Kochiti. Crow had been sitting on the eggs in her nest for many days, and she got tired of it and flew away. Hawk came by and found nobody on the nest. Hawk said to herself, "The person who owns this nest must no longer care for it. What a shame for those poor little eggs!" I will sit on them, and they will be my children. She sat for many days on the eggs, and finally they began to hatch. Still, no crow came. The little ones all hatched out, and the mother hawk flew about getting food for them. They grew bigger and bigger, and their wings got strong, and at last it was time for the mother hawk to take them off the nest. After all this while, crow finally remembered her nest. When she came back to it, she found the eggs hatched, and Hawk taking care of her little ones. Hawk, what is it? You must return these little ones you are leading around. Why? Because they are mine. Hawk said, "Yes, you laid the eggs, but you had no pity on the poor things. You went off and left them. I came and sat on the nest." When they were hatched, I fed them, and now I lead them about. They are mine, and I won't return them. Crow said, "I shall take them back." No, you won't. I worked for them, and for many days I fasted, sitting there on the eggs. In all that time, you didn't come near them. Why is it now, when I have taken care of them and brought them up, that you want them back? Crow said to the little ones. My children, come with me. I am your mother. But the little ones said they do not know her. Hawk is our mother. At last, when she couldn't make them come with her, she said, "Very well. I'll take Hawk to court, and we shall see who has the right to these children." So Mother Crow took Mother Hawk before the King of the Birds. Eagle said to Crow, "Why did you leave your nest?" Crow hung her head and had no answer to that, but she said, "When I came back to my nest, I found my eggs already hatched, and Hawk taking charge of my little ones. I have come to ask that Hawk return my little ones to me." Eagle said to Mother Hawk, "How did you find this nest of eggs? Many times I went to it and found it empty. No one came for a long time." And at last, I had pity on the poor little eggs. I said to myself, "The mother who made this nest can no longer care for these eggs. I will be glad to hatch the little ones." I sat on them, and they hatched. Then I went about getting food for them. I worked hard and brought them up, and they have grown. Mother Crow interrupted Mother Hawk and said, "But they are my children." I let I laid the eggs. It's not your turn. We are both asking for justice, and it will be given to us. Wait till I have spoken. Eagle said to Mother Hawk, "Is that all?" Yes, I have worked hard to raise my own two little ones. Just when they were grown, Mother Crow came and asked to have them back again, but I won't give them back. It is I who fasted and worked, and they are now mine. The king of the birds said to Mother Crow, "If you really had pity on your little ones, why did you leave the nest for so many days? And why are you demanding to have them now?" Mother Hawk is the mother of the little ones, for she has fasted and hatched them, and flown about searching for their food. Now they are her children. Mother Crow said to the King of the Birds, "King, you should ask the little ones which mother they choose to follow. They know enough to know which one to take." So the King said to the little ones, "Which one will you choose?" Both answered together, "Mother Hawk is our mother. She's all the mother we know." Crow cried, "No, I'm your only mother." The little crow children said, "In the nest, you had no pity on us. You left us. 
Mother Hawk hatched us, and she is our mother. So it was finally settled, as the little ones had said. They were the children of Mother Hawk, who had had pity on them in the nest and brought them up. Mother Crow began to weep. The king said to her, Don't cry, it's your own fault. This is the final decision of the king of the birds. So Mother Crow lost her children. The study of families or kinship is essential to anthropology. Often the first thing an anthropologist does during field work is start collecting information about families. Who's related to whom? How are they related? By birth or by marriage? Do marriage partners come from the same village or not? How do people set up residence after they are married? This information tells us a lot, not only about family structures, but also about how the larger society is organized, the economic obligations between people, and even how people acquire and maintain status in the larger society. Frequently, there are religious and other traditions that explain and uphold ideals about kinship. It is often assumed that in post-industrial societies like the United States or Canada, kinship is less important than in the small-scale societies typically studied by anthropologists. Unlike people in traditional small-scale societies, most people in the United States or Canada are highly mobile. We don't often live in the same town or city in which we grew up, much less the same area where our grandparents grew up. We are hard-pressed to identify distant cousins or the generations of ancestors beyond our great-grandparents. But are ideas about kinship so different? Who is helping most students pay for college? Who do you look to when you need money? Who do you turn to if you are sick or feeling down and need emotional support? Despite distance, expense, and hassle, people go to great extremes to celebrate important days such as Thanksgiving, Christmas, Hanukkah, birthdays, and anniversaries with family members. In societies around the world, families provide economic and emotional support to its members. Societies differ when it comes to who is a member of my family, to whom may I go for support. It is an axiom in anthropology that one of the most important things kinship structure tells an individual in a society is who they can marry and with whom they can have sex. In the early 20th century, the anthropologist Branislaw Malinowski wrote the ethnography The Sexual Life of Savages in the Northwestern Melanesia. It was one of the first books in anthropology to gain a wide general readership. But the title is deceiving. The book isn't about sex, it is about kinship. Because, as the readers of this book soon learned, a society's acknowledgement of whom an individual is related to by blood or birth then determines whom that individual may have sex with or marry. In the United States, Canada, or any other society, who you are related to by blood has been determined by your society. No matter how liberal a particular society's attitudes about sex or marriage may be, there are always rules. The most basic rule for all societies is the incest taboo. An individual may not have sex with or marry someone who is a close blood relative. One of the most basic kinship differences between societies is the determination of who is a blood relative. In anthropology, People biologically related to each other are called cosanguine kin, from the Latin word for blood. It may seem obvious who your cosanguine kin are, but there is a lot of variety among humans and their societies. Like all other scientists, anthropologists put the data or information they collect into categories. In examining the information about cosanguine kinship, Anthropologists use the following categories. Matrilineal kin relationships are traced through the mother, 
children belong to the kin group of their mother. Patrilineal kin relationships are traced through the father, children belonging to the kin group of their father. Bilineal bilateral kin relationships are traced through both the father's and mother's kin groups. Ambilineal kin relationships are different for men and women. All men belong to the same kin group, which is usually headed by the ruler of the society. He is often considered to be descended from a god. Women all belong to the same kin group, headed by the queen of the society. She is considered to be descended from a goddess. This arrangement occurs in very few societies, so it will not be discussed in great detail. These categories may seem relatively simple, but they can have strong impacts on other aspects of society, as we will discuss in chapter 4. And are they so simple? How would you categorize the dominant kin groups of the United States and Canada? Bilineal. If so, why do most of us have the last names of our fathers, as in patrilineal societies? Further, in a patrilineal or matrilineal society, the incest taboo is applied differently to the mother's or father's side of the family. So whether a society is matrilineal or patrilineal can determine with whom you can have sex and marry and who you cannot. Etc. Etc. The Iroquois Haudenosaunee Confederacy is a group of Native Americans linked by language, political organization, and kin groups. They have and continue to occupy the area of what are now northern New York and southern Quebec and Ontario for around 2,000 years. The Iroquois are a matrilineal society in which the consanguineal kin groups are organized into clans. Bear, wolf, deer, hawk, snipe, heron, turtle, beaver, and eel. The Iroquois don't believe they are descended from these animals, but in the ancient times of oral tradition, the relationship between animals and people was so close they could even communicate with each other. As you read in the story about Sky Woman, the turtle provided a place for her to land and on which the earth now resides. The women of the bear clan learned about medicinal plants from a shape-changing bear. Bride Wealth. Oh wait. For most of human history, marriage was not a romantic arrangement between two individuals. It was an economic relationship between two families. Because cosanguineal and affinal kin depend on each other for economic resources, the marriages between members of their kin groups are very important. Elder family members will arrange marriages for younger members to ensure the most advantageous economic arrangement. The individuals seeking a marriage and their families must show or exchange their economic resources. Again, anthropology has categories for the different ways resources are exchanged between families. Bride wealth. The intended groom and his family provide economic resources to the intended bride and her family. This is not buying a wife. The groom and his family demonstrate they can contribute resources to the bride and her family. The groom and his family also acknowledge the labor and economic value of the bride. In a patrofocal society, the groom's family is compensating the bride's family for the loss of her and her labor. Women have relatively high status in societies that practice bride wealth. 
The exchange of bride wealth is found in many Native American and African societies. Bride service. The intended groom must provide labor to the bride's family for a period of time, or in a matrilocal society the rest of his life, as he will be living with his wife's extended family. Again, the groom is showing he can make economic contributions to his bride's family. A number of Native American societies, like the Navajo, have bride service. The practice is also found in the Old Testament. For example, Abraham must work 14 years for his intended father-in-law in order to marry Rebecca. Gift exchange. The families of the bride and groom exchange gifts as part of the marriage ceremony. Again, the families demonstrate they can help support the bride and groom and each other. However, status may be achieved through the exchange of the gifts. If one side of the family can offer gifts of greater value, they have attained a higher level of status than the other family. This is particularly true among societies of the northwest coast who have potlatches, a redistribution of resources by giving them away during the ceremony. Dowry. In societies that have dowries as part of the marriage, women and their families must provide economic resources to the groom and his family. In order for a woman to get married, she must provide a dowry. If her family is able to provide a sizable dowry, she may be able to marry into a higher status family and thus improve the status and resources of her children. Dowries indicate that women hold a lower status in a society and are rare in Native American societies. European and many Asian societies have or historically had dowries, which put women in a very vulnerable position as they couldn't get married without resources, and they lost control of those resources when they got married. If the husband were to waste those resources, the woman and her children could be left destitute. If the husband died before a woman bore a son who could provide for her, she was often sent back to her family, who may or may not have taken her back in. These are traditions that were practiced until fairly recently around the world. In some places, they are still practiced. Societies of the Northwest Coast still have potlashes, though the gifts given away are different than they were 200 years ago. In addition to fishing, people of the Northwest also gathered a wide array of edible and medical plants. While men and women had specific jobs in securing resources, both contributed to the wealth of families and the community, and shared in the labor to get that wealth. As a result, women had fairly equal status with men in their societies. This equal status is reflected in the fact that both men and women of rank and wealth could be chiefs and have more than one spouse. Because the area is so rich, the people of the Northwest were probably one of the only foraging societies worldwide able to have resource surpluses. These surpluses became very important in the status hierarchy of these societies. Such hierarchy sets the Northwest societies apart because foraging societies are generally egalitarian. That is, there is very little status or rank between the members of the society. These two factors make the societies of the Northwest unique. Most societies of the Northwest were matrilineal. Extended families lived in large houses constructed of various kinds of timber available in the area. Each nuclear family had separate quarters in a partitioned part of the house. Extended families and individuals within the family all participated in a very complex system of social rank and status. There were three ranks in these societies, nobles, commoners, and slaves. Particularly in the northern part of the Northwest, 
The distinction between nobles and commoners was of great cultural significance. Despite the fact that the difference between the two groups was really a continuum of differences, rather than a divide between the two groups, people strove to acquire and enhance their social rank. Nobles held high-ranking names and titles. They owned ceremonial properties such as masks, ancestor crests, songs, dances, and rituals. Commoners lacked these culturally prestigious items, but they could acquire noble status by their inheritance. Slaves were war captives, and along with their children, they lived in their master's household, doing menial labor. They were generally freed after one generation, but even then they were excluded from the status system. Status and rank are interconnected with marriage patterns. Parents attempted to arrange marriages for their children with people of equal or greater status. Marriages, along with other important life events, such as birth, death, puberty rites, and the naming of a chief, were marked with potlatches. A potlatch is a public feast to which the entire community is invited. In addition to the feasting, singing, and dancing, it is a confirmation of the new status of an individual, adult status for a young girl, for example, and community witnessing of the inheritance of ceremonial property, such as masks, songs, or the rights to fish or harvest berries at particular locations by specific individuals. Ceremonial property is often displayed, and often there is a giveaway. Those sponsoring the potlatch give away resources to those attending. Status can be maintained or increased by value of the items given away. The potlatch system also helps in the distribution of resources throughout the community. Even the poorest people receive items, though they cannot gain status by giving away valuable items themselves. In the past, the governments of the United States and Canada have restricted these practices. One practice still restricted by both governments is having multiple marriage partners at the same time. This practice is called polygamy. There are actually two types of polygamy, polygyny and polyandry. In societies that practice polygyny, men may have multiple wives. However, in those societies, most men have one. Having multiple wives is a sign of status and wealth for a man, but he usually must have the wealth and status before he can have more than one wife. In many societies, a man must provide bride wealth or bride service before he can get additional wives, and then he must provide for all the wives and their children. Most men do not have that wealth. Even in societies that have dowries, for example, Islamic societies, the Quran, the holy book of Islam, demands men must provide equally for all wives and their children. In some societies, many in Africa, for example, that have bride wealth, the first wife may help her husband build the wealth to acquire an additional wife generally a female relative, to help in the labor. Women will work to increase their bride wealth to help provide the bride wealth for their sons. Many Native American societies historically practiced polygyny. In some societies, they practiced patrilocality, in which a sister or other unmarried female relative might move in with a family when a young woman gave birth. Often she would then become a second wife. This is called sororate, when close female relatives marry the same man. But some Native American societies, Cherokees for example, may have practiced polyandry. Typically polyandry in which a woman has more than one husband 
is found in patrilineal and patrifocal agricultural societies, in which land is passed from a father to his sons. Parts of Tibet and Sri Lanka have communities that practice polyandry. Typically, sons would inherit part of the farm when they married or their father died. But in instances in which the availability of farmland is severely limited when one son marries, his brothers marry the woman as well. More than three brothers will marry two sisters. In North America, early Spanish and French documents indicate that among some Native American societies, women, generally those of high status, had more than one husband, but not because of limited farmland. The women who had multiple husbands generally had land and resources. From the written documents, it appears that these women had multiple husbands for the same reasons men in other societies have multiple wives, for the status. In Europe, the United States, and Canada until recently, it was very difficult for a woman to initiate a divorce, and she might well lose custody of her children. In Native American societies, particularly those that were matrilineal or matrifocal, divorce was fairly easy. If a couple was not getting along, or a man was not getting along with his fam wife's family, or he was not contributing resources, he could be sent back to his family, the equivalent of divorce. The Cherokees are such a society, historically matrilineal and matrifocal, in which women have high status, and both women and men can easily get a divorce. Women who divorced a first husband could have a second. This may illustrate the high status women had in some Native American societies, just as having multiple wives demonstrates the status of a man. Chapter 3, Resources and Their Distribution Coyote was out hunting and found a dead deer. One of the deer's rib bones looked just like a big dentalia mollusk shell, and Coyote picked it up and took it with him. He went up to the frog people. The frog people had all the water. When anyone wanted any water to drink or cook with or to wash, they had to go and get it from the frog people. Coyote came up. Hey, frog people, I have a big dentalia shell. I want a big drink of water. I want to drink for a long time. Give us that shell, said the frog people, and you can drink all you want. Coyote gave them the shell and began drinking. The water was behind a large dam where Coyote drank. I'm going to keep my head down for a long time, said Coyote, because I'm really thirsty. Don't worry about me. Okay, we won't worry, said the frog people. Coyote began drinking. He drank for a long time. Finally, one of the frog people said, Hey, coyote, you sure are drinking a lot of water there. What are you doing that for? Coyote brought his head up out of the water. I'm really thirsty. Oh. After a while, one of the frog people said, Coyote, you sure are drinking a lot. Maybe you better give us another shell. Let me, just let me finish this drink, said coyote putting his head back under the water. The frog people wondered how a person could drink so much water. They didn't like this. They thought Coyote might be doing something. 
Coyote was digging out under the dam all the time. He had his head underwater. When he was finished, he stood up and said, That was a good drink. That was just what I wanted. Then the dam collapsed, and the water went out into the valley and made creeks and rivers and waterfalls. The frog people were very angry. You have taken all the water, Coyote. It is not right that one people have all the water. Now it is where everyone can have it. Coyote did that. Now anyone can go down to the river and get a drink of water or some water to cook with or just swim around. A Kayapuya story told by Barry Lopez in 1927. Until the 20th century, the availability of resources, food and material for making clothing or building houses or tools, depended on where the people of a particular society lived. This was especially true for food. People might be able to travel long distances to get materials for tools or trade for materials with other people, but food was perishable. It would go bad very quickly, long before it could be transported long distances. The climate of an area could also determine resources. Farming would be difficult to impossible in the Arctic and subarctic. People living in those areas would have to rely on foraging, a method of getting resources through a combination of gathering wild edibles, fishing, and hunting. People who lived in more temperate areas with long-growing seasons, like the southeastern part of what today is the United States, would have more options available to them, including the development of agriculture. However resources are obtained, food is a limited resource. Animals can be overhunted, leading to their extinction, as can fish be overfished. Even wild edibles can be exploited. But as the story about coyote and the frog people shows, the most important resource is water. Human living sites are always found around water, such as lakes, rivers, streams, and creeks. Habitation sites might also be found along the ocean shore, as in the northwest coastal areas, but there would also have to be sources for drinking water. Water was not only necessary for drinking, cooking, and washing. It was also an important food source. Fish, shellfish, waterfowl, and water plants were all important foods. Water could also be an important transportation route, allowing fairly easy access by canoe or boat to additional areas for the gathering of resources. Water sources, the climate, and environmental factors like rainfall and the length of growing seasons are all important in determining the resources people have available. Different societies living in the same area might utilize their environments and resources in different ways. What and how a society gets and utilizes its resource, its resources is its economy. Today in the United States and Canada, we think of economy as referring to money, jobs, and businesses. But this perspective would not describe most of human history. In a broader perspective, economy refers to the resources available to a society, how they are obtained, and how those resources are distributed. Anthropologists have four categories that describe the ways societies utilize or exploit their environments for food resources. Foraging, pastoralism, horticulture, and agriculture. Industrialization, in which people largely work in factories or other business for a wage, is the type of labor with which you are familiar. But this is a relatively recent, in the last 120 years, 
way of getting resources. In an industrial society, people work for a wage and use that to buy the resources they need or can afford. For most of human history, people worked directly for resources they needed. The way most people in Western societies get resources is changing again. As most of us are and will be employed in service industries, such as teaching. This is often referred to as post-industrialization. Beginning in the 19th century, many native peoples started participating in wage labor on ranches and farms. With relocation to cities in the 20th century, many Native Americans started working in construction and factories in the United States and Canada. In the 21st century, many Native American communities and individuals have started their own businesses. The best known are casinos, but they have also started ski resorts, water bottling plants, golf courses, small engine manufacturing facilities, and greeting card companies. Pastoralism refers to the domestication of animals. Societies domesticated animals like horses, cattle, sheep, goats, and reindeer to obtain needed resources from the animals themselves or by trading the animals and their byproducts, milk or meat, with other societies. For example, in the Congo, the cattle herding Zulu will trade milk and meat with their foraging neighbors, the Mbuti, for the roots and fruits they gather. Few societies in North America practiced pastoralism, pastoralism to any extent, although some raised turkeys or other fowl. The Aztec of Mexico raised domesticated deer, and the Incas of South America raised llamas. But for the most part, Native Americans did not adopt the practice of domesticating animals until after European colonization, so the practice will not be discussed in great detail. Foraging societies get food resources through a combination of the collection of wild edibles, fishing, and hunting. In the 20th century, the anthropological emphasis in examining and describing foraging societies focused on hunting. The assumption was that most of the food in foraging societies came from hunting and that men were doing the hunting. This assumption often formed the hypothesis for why men had more status in their societies. They provided the food. We now know that in foraging societies in temperate climates, up to 75% to 80% of food comes from the gathering of wild edibles work that is generally associated with women. Further, in Arctic and subarctic societies in which wild edibles are limited, women participated and continue to participate in hunting, including the hunting of elk, moose, and caribou. More than 10,000 to 12,000 years ago, all human societies were foragers. In places like Northern Europe, Asia, and North America, now extinct animals were hunted. In North America, these animals included mastodons, giant beavers, and ground sloths. Because of the size of animals hunted, these societies are referred to as big game hunting societies. In such societies, not just men participated in the hunting of large game, but the entire community took part. The community would work together to drive animals into corrals or over cliffs where they would be butchered, and the meat and skins prepared. Around 10,000 years ago, these large animals started becoming extinct due to a number of environmental factors 
including climate change and perhaps overhunting. As a consequence, these Paleo-Indian early native peoples foraging societies adapted to hunting the smaller game, such as elk, moose, caribou, and deer, whatever was available in a particular area. Often overlooked in examining a foraging society is the importance of fishing. Remember, early human living sites, including those in the Americas, are found around water. Getting needed resources through fishing does not have the same romantic allure as big game hunting or tracking bison, but it is a very important way of getting food. A fish diet is highly nutritious and healthier than a red meat diet. Further, it supplies important omega-3 fats that are important to brain development. Many members of the community could fish, not just strong, healthy men. Archaeological sites often have artifacts that were used to fish, including weirs, an enclosure of stakes and nets to trap fish, nuts, fishing spears, hooks, and weights. Current archaeological estimates suggest that up to 75% of the non-vegetable part of foraging people's diets came from fish. Fishing and fishing rights continue to be very important to contemporary native communities. The Hikarila Apachiogenesis Story In the beginning, the earth was covered with water, and all living things were below in the underworld. Then people could talk, the animals could talk, the trees could talk, and the rocks could talk. It was dark in the underworld, and eagle plumes were used for torches. The people and the animals that go about by day wanted more light, but the night animals, the bear, the panther, and the owl, wanted darkness. After a long agreement, they agreed to play the thimble and button game, and if the day animals won, there would be light, but if the night animals won, it would always be dark. The game began. The magpie and the quail, who love the light and have sharp eyes, watched until they could see the button through the thin wood of the hollow stick that served as a thimble. This told the people where the button was, and in the first round, the people won. The morning star came out, and the black bear ran and hid in the darkness. They played again, and the people won. It grew brighter in the east, and the brown bear ran and hid in a dark place. They played a third time, and the people won. It grew brighter in the east, and the mountain lion slunk away into the darkness. They played a fourth time, and again the people won. The sun came up in the east, and it was day. The owl flew away and hid. Even though it was light now, the people still didn't see much because they were underground. But the sun was high enough to look through a hole and discover that there was another world, this earth. He told the people, and they all wanted to go up there. They built four mounds to help them reach the upper world. In the east, they mounded the soil and planted it with all kinds of fruits and berries that were colored black. In the south, they heaped up another mound and planted all kinds of fruits that were blue. In the west, they built a mound that they planted with yellow fruits. In the north, they planted the mound with fruits of variegated colors. The mounds grew into mountains, and the bushes blossomed, fruited, and produced ripened berries. One day, two girls climbed up to pick berries and gather flowers to tie in their hair. Suddenly, the mountains stopped growing. The mountains stopped growing while their tops were still a long way from the upper world. So the people tried laying feathers crosswise to make a ladder but the feathers broke under their weight. The people made a second ladder of larger feathers. 
but again they were too weak. They made a third ladder of eagle feathers, but even these would not bear much weight. Then a buffalo came and offered his right horn, and three others also contributed their right horns. The horns were strong and straight, and with them the people were able to climb up through the hole to the surface of the earth. But the weight of those humans bent the buffalo horns, which have been curved ever since. Now the people fastened the sun and moon with spider threads so that they could not get away and sent them up into the sky to give light. And since water covered the whole earth, four storms went to roll the waters away. The black storm blew to the east and rolled up the waters into the eastern ocean. The blue storm blew to the south and rolled up the waters in that direction. The yellow storm rolled up the waters in the west, and the vari-colored storm went to the north and rolled up the waters there. So the tempests formed the four oceans in the east, the south, the west, and the north. Having rolled up the waters, the storms returned to where the people were waiting, grouped around the mouth of the hole. The polecat first went out, when the ground was still soft, and his legs sank in the black mud and have been black ever since. They sent the tornado to bring him back, because it wasn't time. The badger went out, but he too sank in the mud and got black legs, and tornado called him back. Then the beaver went out, walking through the mud and swimming through the water and at once began to build a dam to save the water still remaining in the pools. When he did not return, Tornado found him and asked why he had not come back. Because I wanted to save the water for the people to drink, said the beaver. Good, said Tornado, and they went back together. Again the people waited, until at last they sent out the gray crow to see if the time had come. The crow found the earth dry, and many dead frogs, fish, and reptiles lying on the ground. He began picking out their eyes and did not return until Tornado was sent after him. The people were very angry when they found he had been eating carrion, and he, they changed his color to black. But now the earth was all dry except for the four oceans and the lake in the center, where the beaver had dammed up the waters. All the people came up. They traveled east until they arrived at the ocean. Then they turned around south until they came again to the ocean. Then they went west to the ocean, and then they turned north. And as they went, each tribe stopped where it wanted to. But the Hikarillas continued to circle around the hole where they had come up from the underworld. Three times they went around it when the ruler became displeased and asked them where they wanted to stop. They said, in the middle of the earth. So he led them to a place very near Taos and left them. And there near the Taos Indians, the Hikarillas made their home. Christopher Columbus came in contact with the peoples of the Caribbean, among them the Tanios, Arawaks, and Caribs. Later, Spanish conquerors, such as Hernando Cortes, conquered the peoples of Mesoamerica, present-day Mexico and Central America, such as the Maya and Aztecs. The contact continued to peoples living along the eastern seaboard, to the southwestern part of the United States then the western coast of North America, and finally the peoples of the interior part of North America, the last to be encountered by Europeans. However, native peoples did not have to have direct contact with Europeans to be affected by them. One of the most devastating of these encounters, direct or indirect, was disease. 
The peoples of the Americas had no immunity to the diseases brought by Europeans. The populations of the Americas had largely been isolated from Europe, Africa, and Asia for thousands of years. In that time, many diseases evolved in the Old World. Diseases like smallpox, the plague, and even diseases that are now commonplace, such as measles, mumps, and chickenpox. Over time, the Europeans who survived these diseases and their children developed immunities to them. Despite surviving, they were still carriers of the disease, and they carried it to the Americas. The native peoples had no immunity to these diseases, and many died from the exposure. Probably far more native peoples died from disease than in warfare with Europeans. Europeans may have contracted diseases, such as a form of syphilis, from native peoples as well, but the diseases passed onto the Europeans did not seem to have had the same devastating impact. This population lost due to disease further complicates estimating how many people lived in the Americas before the significant European contact that followed in the wake of Columbus's arrival. Native peoples had extensive trade routes throughout Turtle Island. People met, traded goods, and often formed marriage alliances. As a result, trade goods often spread the European diseases before a specific society ever encountered a European, and well before the population size could be estimated. Starting in the 19th century, archaeology and the examination of burials and the material remains of a society became a tool in helping to estimate native populations before European contact. However, many early archaeologists didn't just examine burials for population estimates. In numerous instances, Native American skeletons were exhumed from burial sites and sent to various museums in the United States, Canada, and Europe for examination and storage. Often the data accompanying these remains were inadequate, so that now it is difficult to determine where a skeleton and other artifacts came from. Therefore, they are not very useful in determining population size. It must be clear by now that trying to estimate a population from more than 500 years ago can be very difficult. Estimates for North America at the time have ranged from 8.4 million to 112 million. In 1976, geographer William Denovan used a combination of techniques and data to arrive at what he called a consensus count of 53.9 million people in the Americas in 1491. He divides the population into 3.8 million for North America, 17.2 million for Mexico, 5.6 million in Central America, 3.3 million in the Caribbean, 15.7 million in the Andes, and 8.6 million in the lowlands of South America. The largest populations coincide with the city-state societies of the Aztecs and Maya in Mexico and the Inca in Peru. Denovan further estimates that the first peoples of the Americas suffered a death toll of 89%, striking their numbers from 53.9 million to 5.6 million by the 16th century as a result of disease, warfare, and the experience of slavery. Denovan, Pristine Landscape. Some populations, like the Maya, would not attain their pre-1492 population levels until the 20th century. Some never have. Some have become extinct. It is no wonder Native Americans refer to their experiences at the hands of European invaders as genocide. Why, then, from the very beginning of European settlement, were the Americas described as vast, empty spaces ready to be occupied by Europeans who were feeling population pressures in their home countries? Both European governments, like the Spanish, French, and British, and private companies with royal charters, 
like the Virginia Bay Colony, encouraged landless people to move and settle in the New World, where land and resources were plentiful. In part, this policy was based on relieving population pressure and civil unrest in Europe, and partly on the need to have people to harvest the resources of the Americas. Following the wake of the Spanish, who, it is estimated, removed 40 billion of gold and silver from Meso and South America, many came looking for gold and instead found lumber, fish, animal skins, and a variety of foods not known in Europe, Asia, or Africa. In the long run, these resources proved to be more valuable than the gold and silver that were soon depleted. In his books, Indian Givers and Native Roots, anthropologist Jack Weatherford examines how Native Americans enriched the world through their contributions of food and medicines. Weatherford estimates 70 to 75 percent of the world's food and medicines come from the Americas and were unknown in the Old World previous to the 1500s. Euro-Americans and Canadians usually think of tobacco, a plant used by Native Americans for religious and medical purposes, as an example of an indigenous American crop. Early colonial farmers like John Wolfe, the husband of Pocahontas, had to hybridize the native tobacco to suit the tastes of European smokers. More crucial were crops such as corn, beans, squash, tomatoes, potatoes, chili peppers, and chocolate. Not only did Native Americans develop and grow these important crops, they developed various varieties to adapt to various environmental factors. Thus, they grew over 30 varieties of corn. Some varieties adapted for drought, pests, and the shorter growing seasons of the Northeast. Early conquerors of the Southwest noted the rainbow colors of corn drying on the roofs of the Pueblos. In the 19th century, when Americans were working to distinguish themselves from their European kin as they established communities across the continent, they developed the concept of manifest destiny. This concept held that it was the destiny of Americans to occupy, settle, and civilize North America. This idea is depicted in the painting American Progress by John Gast, in which a woman holds a book leading the way west for American settlers, driving the indigenous Native American people away into the darkness. Inherent within the understanding of Manifest Destiny was the belief that the Americas were vast, nearly empty lands, not an area that was home to up to 53 million people. This myth that the Americas were nearly empty lands until Europeans got here is one that continues in the minds of Euro-American Americans today. But Turtle Island, like Europe, was home to vast array of people who harvest resources, raised families, ran their communities, traded, and sometimes fought with other communities. When Christopher Columbus returned to Spain after his first voyage to the Caribbean, he brought with him people, animals, plants, and other artifacts he had found during his travels. A two-month journey in a small, crowded ship was no doubt very difficult for the Caribbean natives, who were unused to ocean travel. In Spain, indeed in all of Europe, their arrival caused quite an upheaval in the way Europeans viewed the world. At this time, Europeans held that the Earth was about 8,000 years old, and that the world and everything in it was the same now as it was at the time of creation. So how could Europeans account for very different animals, plants, and people that did not fit into this very ordered view of the world? The question of who the native peoples of Turtle Island were and where they came from is one that various people have tried to answer since 1492. In the 1500s, there were arguments about whether these indigenous peoples were even human or had souls. 
The Dominican priest Bartolome de las Casas, in 1542, established that humans were that Indians were human and had souls, that they were not a separate creation or created by the devil. But if that was so, how did they become? How did they come to be in the Americas, separated from the rest of the world? Over the last five hundred years, there have been a number of highly speculative theories about where the indigenous peoples of the Americas came from. One was that they are a remnant population from the lost continent of Atlantis. Another theory was that American Indians were the descendants of Western societies. Egyptian, Greek, Irish, or Welsh sailors who were blown off course by storms to the Americas. Were there women on these ships? Another theory speculates that Native Americans were the descendants of the lost tribes of Israel, though no explanation is given to how these tribes traveled from the deserts of the Middle East to the Americas. More recently, some speculators like Eric von Daniken have maintained that Native Americans are the descendants of alien visitors from space who have lost the knowledge of their ancestors. These theories are often based on the premise that Native Americans were not capable of building the monumental architecture and art found throughout the Americas. But those who encountered native peoples early in the conquest of the Americas had no such thoughts. Cortez, the Spanish conquistador, who attacked, conquered, and destroyed much of Tenochtitlan, the capital city of the Aztecs, was convinced the Aztecs had built the city. Cortez marveled at Tenochtitlan's floating gardens and public baths. Which were so large that he said Rome could fit in one corner. However, he then destroyed much of it, but he didn't think men from outer space had built it. He knew that the Aztecs had. Archaeology has shown us how native peoples were able to build monuments like those in Mexico. Monks Mound of Cahokia, found not far from the present-day city of Saint Louis. Pueblos found throughout what is now the southwestern part of the United States, and mounds found in the Mississippi and Ohio River valleys. Like people throughout the world who built monuments, they started off small and learned as they went along. From the 1700s to today, amateur archaeologists and anthropologists wondered about the Native Americans they encountered and the artifacts they found. Thomas Jefferson, for example, had an extensive collection of native artifacts he found in Virginia. The poet William Cullen Bryant wrote the poem *The Prairies*, in which he postulated that the peoples who had built monumental architecture found in various parts of the Americas had been killed and supplanted by the more brutish and warlike Indian Americans. This belief about Native Americans was commonly held by Euro-Americans. Well into the twentieth century, the development of archaeology and anthropology as an academic discipline, in which people are trained to gather information with a defined set of protocols, started to develop in the late nineteenth century. Throughout the twentieth and now twenty-first century, anthropologists and archaeologists continue to gather data about. The native peoples of the Americas. One of the big questions continues to be, where did they come from? The issue of where humans come from, how they developed, is one of the biggest general questions in anthropology and archaeology. The origination of a people of a particular geographic area is part of that question. Scientifically, there are two ways of looking at the evolution and migration of humans: monogenesis and polygenesis. Did humans start the evolutionary process in one geographic area, or in two or more?
currently, the evidence suggests, and most scientists would agree, that human Homo sapiens evolution started in Africa. For example, while archaeologists continue to find older and older skeletal remains of humans in the Americas, all these remains are fully modern humans. There have been no Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, nor any of the other early stages of human evolution found in the Americas. Early populations of humans migrated from Africa to other parts of the world. In the 21st century, we may forget that until the 1869 construction of the Suez Canal, a thin strip of land connected Africa to Asia and Europe. So that part of the migration pattern is relatively easy to understand, but how did people, fully modern humans like us, get across vast oceans to the Americas? Here, knowledge of geology is helpful. Unlike the Europeans of Columbus's time, we now know the world we live in did not always look like it does now, and it will change in the future as well. The planet Earth has gone through periods of glaciations and melting. What is now dry land may have been an ocean thousands of years ago. Mountains erupt and then wear down. Earth is an ever-changing landscape. Changes in land, geology, and topography made it possible even necessary for early humans to migrate out of Africa. One of the oldest theories about how humans came to the Americas is based on geological evidence that suggests present-day Alaska was connected to present-day Siberia by a land bridge. This phenomenon is called the Bering Land Bridge, for the Bering Strait, which it crosses, or Beringia.